those baskets are making their way around, I invite you to turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 18 through, through 29. You know, there's a national conversation going on right now. I don't know if you know there's a national conversation going on right now. But it has to do with free speech. Free speech. There's a study by the, the, the Brookings Institution that was recently released this week. And th- these are some eye-opening statistics, so, so buckle your seatbelt. This study found that nearly one in five college students support the use of violence against speakers who say, quote-unquote, offensive and hurtful things, one in five. More than half of college students surveyed, half, say that shouting down those you disagree with is appropriate. And all I can say is don't try this with your pastor, please, okay? Now, there's all sorts of fascinating things and all sorts of cultural commentary that we could offer here, but it leads us to ask some interesting questions, some compelling questions, such as, well, who gets determined? Who gets to determine what is offensive and hurtful? Who, who makes that evaluation? How do we decide what warrants violence? Okay, you know, that's worth a slap on the wrist. This is a beheading. I mean, like somewhere in between there, like what, what, what are we asking? Which body or which institution or which person gets to make those kinds of decisions? Those are some of the compelling storylines. You see, these aren't merely free speech issues. They point to something more foundational, I would propose. See, these are really authority issues. Who or what or whom has the authority to decide all of these things? Now, interestingly, it's the same issue of authority that's the heart of this passage, this section in John's gospel that we have been studying. Now, remember, John has been, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, and he has proceeded to heal a man at the pool of Bethesda, an invalid for 38 years. And not only does he heal them, but kind of as a nan-nan to the Pharisees, he heals them when? On the Sabbath. Ooh, on the Sabbath. And this brings up just an explosion of opposition between, Jew, uh, between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And, and there, there, there seems to be some sort of tipping point that, that's, that's reached in this section of John, because as we talked about last week, it's never the same after this. Everything is heading towards this, this ultimate conclusion, this confrontation, which will ultimately end in Jesus' death. And as we read last week, they begin to plot immediately to kill Jesus, because Jesus, and they, they knew what was going on here, Jesus was making himself equal with God. He was saying that God was his own Father. And see, Jesus understands what the real issue is here. Jesus understands what the real issue is in your heart, in my heart. It's about authority. See, the religious leaders were appealing to Moses and and the Old Testament as their authority, which was great. Ostensibly, that would be appealing to God's authority. And so Jesus kind of one-ups them, and he says, remember this line, he says, my father is working and I am working. In other words, if you really know God the Father, if you are really under him and his authority, Jesus says, you will listen to me because my authority comes from him. So, so, so the issue at the bottom of the issue here 
is who do we say Jesus is and what does that mean for us? What is the nature of Jesus' authority and how does it apply to you and I, our church family, right here, right now, today? That's where we're going. So I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to be in John 5, beginning in verse 18. We'll flash the words up here for you. We stand because we stand under the Word of God. It shapes everything we think and do. It's our authority through Jesus. So let's read together. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Lord, this is really a word about Jesus and Jesus about your authority not just over us, but over all of mankind, over all of world history, over the whole universe. And Lord, every one of us is going to, quote unquote, hear these words this morning. But Lord, there's a certain kind of hearing that's shown in this passage that leads to life. There's a certain kind of hearing that leads to death. And oh Lord, I pray that you would peel back the layers on our eyes, that we would see you, Jesus, in your glorious authoritative reign and that we would worship, that we would bow down, that we would bend the knee, that we would submit our lives and our hearts to you. Lord, you've got to do this by the work of your spirit or else these words will fall on deaf ears and hard hearts. Lord, do your work, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Let me take a seat. We're going to hone in on two aspects of the authority of Jesus. That's the, that's, the central, that's the central issue that's orbing here. We're going to talk about the nature of the authority of Jesus, and we're going to talk about the extent of the authority of Jesus, the nature and the extent. Now, you need to know that, and you probably do know this, that, that most families, most parental dyads have a good cop and a bad cop. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, I can't relate to you. Okay, there, in other words, there's the parent who is going to be more apt to toe the line, to enforce the rules, the boundaries, the limits, to say no. What do we call that person? 
bad cop, okay? Now, good cops like me, okay, right, are the lenient parents, the one who says yes to the Xbox, the one who says yes to spending the night just as long as you get home by Monday morning and go to school, all right? So Susan's asking me, do you know where the kids are? To which I say, of course I know where the kids are. Then where are they? They're in the neighborhood somewhere doing something or of the other. All I know is that they are not here right now, and that's a good thing. No, I mean, like, that's a good <laughs> Kids pick up on this, right? And they love to work the good cop, bad cop routine. They love to get mom and dad at odds. They love to, to sort of turn these different personalities and get them to work at cross purposes with each other. And, and, and we can be tempted to do the same thing um, even with the Bible. You know, there's like Jesus in the New Testament, but there's like God of the Old Testament, and those things don't, don't go together. Jesus just, he puts a stake in the heart of that right away. Because remember, it's the Jews who, are re, who were referencing God, their father, or God the father of the Jewish religion from the Old Testament. But, and here's what Jesus, here's the amazing claims that Jesus has about his relationship with the father. And there is no good cop, bad cop going on here. Okay, look at just, I'm just going to roll through it real quickly. Verse 19, whatever the father does, the son does. Verse 20, the father shows the son what he does. Verse 21, Jesus gives life alongside of the father. Verse 22, we'll talk about this in a minute. The God the father delegates judgment to the son. In other words, John is going great guns here to show us that father and son cannot be divided. Okay, there is, there is, no, there is no good cop, bad cop thing going on here. It's no coincidence for us that the great councils of the early church, as they were wrestling with this idea of what is the nature of the relationship of God the Father and God the Son? What, what do we have there? It's no coincidence that they turn to John. They turn to passages just like this as they came up with their Trinitarian formulations of one God and three persons. Understand, not three gods, not three personalities, but in fact, one being but three distinct Persons. Now, obviously, there is a human limitation in wrapping our minds fully around that, okay? Uh, severe human limitations, but this is what the text says. So, we'll go back to the text a second. On the one hand, we see the Father and Son in this text perfectly unified. You know, I, I think about synchronized swimming, okay? And, and I watch synchronized swimmers and that just absolutely blows my mind, okay? And now, if you ever want to see the pastoral team do synchronized swimming, just watch Caddyshack. That's all, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> These synchronized swimmers are just frighteningly good, right? They work in just tandem. I mean, you study them, and you're like, they don't get one inch of movement or timing off by, by, by any degree. And Jesus is saying, that's Jesus and the Father, See, there's, there's, there's not God's will and the Son's will. There's God's will and the Son's will, and they converge. They're the same. They're doing, they're showing, they're giving together. You take one piece out of that equation, it doesn't work. So, so there, there is unity in the Godhead. There is unity between the Father and Son. But this text also tells us that there's a great diversity. See, they have different roles. See, the authority that the Son has is derived from the Father. There's, there's just kind of a subordination, if that makes sense. 
like you would see in a father-son relationship. Now, I was, I was on the phone the other day, and I called my dad, and I expected us to talk about why Butch Jones should be fired at Tennessee. And you know, I, thought, so that's, I, thought, I thought that's the conversation we were about to have. I said, so dad, what are you doing? He said, oh, just getting my affairs in order. I'm like, well, thanks a lot, Dad. That's wonderful, okay? You know, we're going on this trip to Israel, and so he's getting all his, his, his will done and this done and that done, and hopefully, Dad, we're not going anywhere. But, but the point, as, as he was talking to me, is that he said, I, you know, I had to, had to find an executor of the will, you know, which is going to be you and, you and your sister. And so an executor is someone who acts on behalf, okay, of the executor, shall we say, the one who has one who has written the will, and that's sort of the same sort of okay the same concept that John is driving at here, that the father and son, while being one being, while being of one mind, of being in perfect unity, yet are distinct as it relates their functions, as it relates to their responsibilities, their their duties, the you know the. In the history of redemption, we know that it is God who sends forth, God the Father. It's he who decrees, it's he who elects, it's he who is sovereign. And his son, Jesus, is executing the will and the judgments of God the Father. So we're going to find out later in John, what does Jesus say? He's like, Lord, take this cup from me in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, take this cup from me. He's talking to God the Father. And then what does Jesus say immediately after but not what? Not my will, but your will. You see, we, we, in, we intuitively think in our culture when it comes to leadership and responsibilities that submission or being subordinate is an inherently inferior position, that it's inherently um, exploitive, and, and, it, and it can be, but that's not the way it was designed to be. See, there is a beauty in this, in this relationship of father submitting to son I mean, son submitting to father and father leading son. And that's what we find in this passage. And we think, by the way, and this is not what this sermon is about, but this forms a pattern for all human relationships in marriage, um, in, in the church. And that's, a, that's another sermon for another time in another day. The point is, you can't drive a wedge between the father and son, but the son specifically has been given a specific authority by the, by the Father. And, and we want to talk about what that particular authority is. See, the Father has given Jesus an authority to act on his behalf. Specifically, this passage says, this is not something that we're always comfortable talking about, when it comes to judgment. Do you realize that the word judge or judgment appears five different times in this passage? as it relates to Jesus. You know, we, we typically think about the God of the Old Testament talks about judgment, but, but Jesus talks about love and forgiveness. We need to remember, no one in the New Testament talked more about judgment than whom? Jesus. Than Jesus. And so, so John is wanting to impress something upon us this morning as it relates to Jesus and the judgment. And, and the reason that Jesus can speak to this is because this has been delegated, given to him, passed down to him this authority by the Father. So we're going to talk about the extent of Jesus' authority for the rest of our times. So look at verse 22. 
In other words, Jesus has this authority because, it's been because of his relationship to the Father, okay, uniquely. Okay, verse 22, it says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, that does not mean that God the Father doesn't judge. Okay, that, that, that's not what that means. That's not how we are to read our Bibles, okay? Because we see in plenty of other places where God the Father most certainly judges. In fact, John mentions many of them in this gospel. If he doesn't mean that, what does he mean? I think what, what Jesus is getting at here is that John is saying that Jesus is the gatekeeper. Jesus is, is, stands on the historical front line of judgment. In other words, when people will be judged at the end of the age, they will be judged in accordance with their relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, and look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, And he has given him, meaning Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That, that term, Son of Man, if you remember when we went through the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, this, the messianic figure um, who is going, who's riding on the clouds, who is coming to judge the nations, Jesus says, that's me. And he's, he's coming to judge as God, but he's also coming to judge as man, that he has walked on earth, that he has experienced everything that we have experienced, yet without sin. Jesus, as the Son of Man, is uniquely, perfectly qualified to make this judgment. And verse 25 tells us what's going to happen. Okay, look at verse 25. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, when you read verse 25, you can, at least the first time I read it, I really assumed that what Jesus was talking about were believers. So in other words, Jesus is going to come back, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and then they will live, right? That's, that's, they hear his voice, they, they, I don't think in this context, that's what Jesus is referring specifically to. Look down in verses 28 and 29. I think Jesus clarifies this. He says, do not marvel at this for an hour's coming. Now listen, when all, listen, hear that, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Now, this, I think, Jesus is not saying anything different than we hear in the rest of Scripture. For example, Acts 24, 15, Paul testifying before Felix. Here's what Paul says. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, Paul tells us. Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, what I want us to camp out on just for a second in verse 28 is the word all. It's for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. I want you just to let that sink in just for a second. So easy to blow past a verse like that and, and forget just the massive implications of what, of what Jesus is saying. 
Every person who's lived in the history of planet Earth will one day rise again. Think of the most powerful, influential people that you can imagine. I'm just a few. Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Adolf Hitler, Alexander the Great, John F. Kennedy, Abraham Lincoln, all, without exception, will rise from the grave. The famous Michael Jackson and Prince and Walt Disney, we had to work him in there, right? Okay. The not-so-famous, you and me, the insignificant, the poor, the lost millions in India and in China, those who've been exploited, those who've been harmed, those who have been taken advantage of, all will rise. And guys, that's, that, that is just a staggering thing if you just let yourself think about it for a minute. Every single person. When my mom was living, she, for some reason, got called regularly to jury duty. And, and there was a particular case when, I don't know if it was a capital crime, but it was <clears throat> some sort of felony. It was a very, it was a hideous charge against this person. And she said that when they and the jurors all got into the, to the jury room after the, after the defense had rested and the prosecution had rested, they all agreed, you know what, this guy probably did this. Like just intuitively, they got the vibe, Right? They got, the, they got a feel. This is what gives you hope in our judicial system, okay? They said, but you know, we just sit and feel like there was, there was enough evidence. It was just, it wasn't there. And, and she talked about what an ominous thing that was, what a heavy, major responsibility to decide someone else's fate. And I want you to think about the authority that Jesus is claiming for himself. He says, I have that authority over every person who's ever lived. And I'm not, I'm not just deciding their, their earthly fate. I'm deciding their eternal fate. See, we, we have to let that rest upon us. That has massive implications for our life. That has massive implications for how we engage others. That has massive implications, parents, for, for how, we, how we love our children, for how we speak to our neighbors, for, for how we view everyone around us. Went to the game yesterday. We stayed as long as there was shade. And once the sun moved off our seats, we were gone, right? Um, it was hot. Every single person there will rise. And here, verse 28 and 29 tell us what will happen when that occurs. When Alexander the Great and Hitler and Napoleon and you and me, and we are all there together. Listen to verse 29. And we will all come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus says there, there, there's two things that are going to happen then. There are those who have done good, who will go to eternal life. There are those who, will, who have done evil with the resurrection of judgment. You know, there, there's, there's a doctrine that many Christians want to affirm, and it's tempting, I agree, it's tempting, called annihilationism, 
which says that there really is no ongoing eternal hell, but that people's hell, quote-unquote, is that when they die, they simply cease to exist. They don't get to enjoy the benefit and pleasure of God's ongoing presence for eternity. Tempting. Tempting. But see, sin against eternal God requires eternal judgment. And Jesus, I think, here leaves no, no room for that. And saying there will be a resurrection of everyone to judgment or to, or to everlasting life. Now, this language can kind of concern us. Because we hear that, and let's be honest, if you've done good, you go to heaven. If you've done bad, you go to hell. That ha- that's not gospel, right? We hear that and are like, oh, crud. That sounds... But, you know, it, it's actually not foreign language to the Scriptures. Because what, what does First Corinthians... What does Hebrews say, first of all? Without holiness, what? You and I won't see the Lord. First Corinthians 6 says, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's say, what do we do with that, Pastor Paul? I've always been taught that we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. What is, what is Jesus saying here? And we'll get to this passage eventually one day, but in John 15, I think Jesus tells us what he means. When he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches, apart from me, you can bear no fruit. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Why does, why does a branch bear fruit? Because it's attached to the vine. Okay? But, but the fruit doesn't make it a branch. You see what I'm saying? It bears fruit because it's attached to the vine. So in the same way, if you don't bear fruit, the natural conclusion is to say, maybe, maybe, maybe you aren't attached to the vine. See, but being attached to the vine and the fruit it produces is evidence See, it's not the basis for your judgment. It's not the basis for your salvation, because if it is, we are in heap big of trouble, right? We're in, we're, in, we're in deep. That's not the way the Scriptures speak. The Scriptures always say that our fruit, our actions, are, in, are indicators of our hearts. See, it's proof, it's evidence of what's happened here. And that when our heart has really been changed, when, when we're attached to the vine, good fruits are produced They're the evidence in that day. They're not the basis for. There'll be a lot of people with fruit who were never attached to the vine, and it will do them no earthly good. I think that's what Jesus is is referencing here. We're going to talk about an application point in a second, but let me finish unpacking the passage. Now, Now, notice, look at verse 25, the prominent place of Jesus's voice. Okay, look at, let's listen to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour's coming and is now here when the dead will hear what? The voice, think about that for a second, of the Son of God. Are there people in your life you've known that just by virtue of hearing their voice, you have been compelled and motivated into action? Do you have those people that you can immediately think of? Maybe it was a parent, it was a teacher, it was a coach. 
You already used Walt Disney once in this sermon, so I'm going to use him again for some reason. Anyway, so, so Walt was a smoker, and, and whenever he would be walking around the building, he had kind of that smoker's cough. And so he would be like doors and doors down, walking through the halls, and the Disney workers would be doing their things, whatever they do. And, and they would hear the cough, and they knew who was coming, right? And they all immediately snapped to He commanded that much power. Guys, we have no idea. When we think about the voice of Jesus, nothing compares. See, we see this over and over in the Gospels. In fact, when we get to John chapter 11, Jesus cries out in a loud voice. What does he say to Lazarus? Lazarus what? Come out. And what does Lazarus do? Like hops across, you know, in his little, in his, was that on video? Edit that out. Okay, please. <laughs> he comes out. What do they say when they're on the water and Jesus stills the water with his voice? What do they say? Even the winds, what? Obey his voice. First Thessalonians 4, 16. I mean, this is authority and power like we can't even imagine. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, And with the sound of the trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first. How will they rise first? By what means? A command. Guys, that's that's the Jesus that we are dealing with. There's three application points I want to, to draw from this when it comes to the authority of Jesus for you and for me. And the first one is this. Today, wherever you are, Whatever you've done, whatever you've not done. However deaf you think you've been before, listen to his voice. Listen to his voice. You see, this text says that everyone is going to hear his voice. Do you understand that? Everyone is going to hear his voice. You're hearing his voice right now, even if you don't know it through his word. But there is, there is two kinds of hearing. There's a hearing that leads to, to death. Eh, whatever, Pastor Paul, I've got plenty of time to figure that out. I've got plenty of time to reckon with that judgment stuff. But I've got a life to live. I've got things to do. I've got places to go. You know, I hear that. I just, I, you know, it's not relevant to me right now. What, is, what does Jesus call the rich fool who builds the barns? What does he call him? Just fool. Tonight, your very life is required of you. So there's a hearing that leads to death. But oh, this is so, so wonderful. There's a hearing that leads to life. For us to say, like David did when confronted by Nathan, yes, Lord, I am that man. I am that man. I have done that thing. Yes, Pastor Paul, I am that woman. I am that man. I am that parent. I, have, I, I haven't been listening to his voice. And the great hope of this passage is, but you could start today by the grace of God. See, the hallmark of the believer is not that we don't sin and don't listen to God's voice. There's probably a hundred ways I, I stuck my fingers in my ears and stopped listening to God this week, probably. The hallmark of the believer, though, is that when we are confronted with it, we deal with it. We confess it. We repent from it. We ask God's help. We respond to the voice of Jesus. 
where do you need to respond to the voice of Jesus? There's hope for you today. Number two, this may sound weird. Thank God for his judgment. That may sound like a strange thing. But you know, there's, there, there's actually two aspects of judgment when we hear from the scriptures. And one is this idea of wrath. Wrath poured out for sins. Wrath justly poured out for sins and wrongs committed. But you know what? There is another aspect of judgment, and it is called mercy. See, judgment is needed, please understand this, for God's grace to win. You see, the only reason we can be for social justice, whether it's racial or whether it's class, whether it's life in the womb, whether it's hardship and poverty outside the womb, the reason we can stand up for that and say that is a good thing is because of judgment. You see, if there is no judgment, no one is going to make any of this right. No one is going to correct any of these wrongs. Those who have been murdered, exploited, hurt, exterminated. Those girls a number of years ago that were captured by the terrorists and in the jungles of Africa and taken away as sex slaves, some even as we speak suffering, without judgment, they will never be vindicated. See, Jesus is coming back to make things right. And you may not experience, and most of the time we won't, full vindication in this life. But be thankful for the judgment of God. Be thankful that you are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank God for his judgment. And third, lastly, be encouraged. I think this is, this is an awesome thing. If you know Jesus, you don't have to wait to know that you are no longer under judgment. You don't have to wait until that day. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, now listen to this, and is now here today. So Jesus is, 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 is telling these, these leaders, yes, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of God, and those who hear will live. But he says, you know what? It's not just distant future, it's right now. And I, and I think what he's referring to here is what is Lazarus, right? See, the point of Jesus' miracles, and we've said this over and over, is never merely to do a magic show. See, the point of his miracles is to say, hey, the kingdom is coming, and it's coming in full one day. But you need to know that the kingdom is also here now. And so I don't, hear, I don't heal all the invalids, but I heal the one at Bethesda. I don't heal all the demon-possessed, but I heal this, this one in this village. I don't raise everyone, but I raise Lazarus. I haven't fixed everyone's wedding and turned the water into wine, but I have for this one in Cana. I don't heal every man born blind, but I've healed this one. What's the point? The kingdom of God is at hand. The, the, the kingdom of God is breaking through. The kingdom of God is giving a foretaste to us in this life, a preview of what is to come, a down payment on what's already been accomplished. So as we, as a church family, wrestle through week to week, 
with our sister Deborah Pacetti. Has an ongoing battle with cancer and ups and downs and continues to endure and endure and endure. And what a testament of God that stupefies, mystifies her doctors. We say, that's the kingdom. We know Deborah is going to die one day, just like all of us are going to die one day if the Lord tarries. But we know as he's doing this, his kingdom is coming. He's given us a foretaste in this life of what will happen in the next. Listen to what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but listen, but has passed from death to life. Do you you know that? Has passed. If you have... When we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have passed, meaning we have gone past the point of judgment. God has already rendered his judgment on our behalf, and it has fallen on the body of Jesus Christ. And we don't have to wait. It's past tense. You know, we will all suffer probably terribly in this life and ultimately die. But Jesus says we have the assurance of God's grace and mercy now. So to wrap this up, why, why, is, why has John decided to record all of this for us? John 20, 31 tells us, reminder, it's, it's the title of the series, I have written these things so that what? You may believe. So this is not esoteric knowledge. This is not philosophical, theoretical fact. John is bringing this text to us and saying, Christian, non-Christian, whoever you are, one day you will see the Son. You will hear his voice. And because of that, today, believe in him. Close with this quote from John Piper. What does God want us to do with this text as we leave? Stand in awe of Jesus Stand in awe of the power of his voice. When he speaks in his office as creator, nothingness obeys. And when he speaks in his office as one who raises the dead, decomposed matter obeys. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father. Bow your heart down and worship this Christ. Let's pray.